right, gang. Um, so we are in the middle of a series actually called uh, Go and Stay. And what we're exploring in this series is decision making. Mostly it's just choices. Uh, so the first week we started off with discernment, which is basically like how do we actually really make a choice as a follower of Jesus? How does Jesus step into those choices? How do we move through those things? Uh, and then last week we talked about stay, which is a difficult sort of uh, position to be in. It, it's one where God says, no, I have you right where I need you, and you need to stay. And we really, really do not like to stay. <laughs> but the problem is, stay is so vitally important to putting like roots of our soul down. We need stay. Stay is uncomfortable because it's not fun and exciting like go, but stay is something that we actually have to be in to grow. Uh, and so last week we talked about what that meant in the story of Jonah. We talked about a guy getting thrown overboard and swallowed by a fish, and we, I think we did a relatively good job of explaining that fish. Uh, but this week, what I want to do uh, is we're going to talk about go, because I think every decision comes down to two things. It's go and it's stay. So it's do I need to go here or do I need to stay here? Uh, and I want to talk this morning specifically about go, what, what it feels like when God's like, no, you actually have to go. Uh, and go is a big, huge spectrum. So a lot of times we think of go as just a physical thing, like, oh, I'm, I'm going to go to another career. I'm moving to another state. Uh, we have a lot of go in our community right now. Uh, people are moving all over the place. I hate you, San Francisco. Stop taking people from me. Anyway, um, but we have a lot of go. Uh, and, and what we need to do is be prepared for go. Because when go happens, oftentimes go is not something we intentionally walk into, unfortunately. Sometimes go just happens to us, and we are left kind of picking up the pieces. Um, so we're going to talk about uh, what I think the vehicle of Go is, which is actually crisis. Um, crisis is something, as a uh, church starter, I thrive on. <laughs> we came in this morning and uh, none of the lights worked. Uh, we've come into this building before and none of the power has been on. There's all sorts of fun stuff, but like when you get in that moment, that like crisis moment, you're like, okay, what do I do? How do we problem solve? I just, I, I can't get enough of that, so I'm in the right place. Anyway, um, <laughs> we, uh, but crisis is, is like Go's vehicle. Crisis is, is what takes us to the next step. Um, when scientists talk about paradigm shifts, which is literally like a paradigm is something that you view as absolutely normal. So there's a normal paradigm. So that's just like your day-to-day -day rhythms. Uh, and then what disrupts that, especially in major, major disruptions, is a crisis. So you have a normal paradigm, you have a crisis, and that re what results after the crisis is a new reality. It's a new paradigm. So a crisis is something so all-consuming and crazy that after the fact, you actually look at the world differently than you did before. All of a sudden, the way that you saw things just doesn't work because the thing that you've experienced has now brought you into a new paradigm. So crisis doesn't have to be a terrible thing. Crisis could be like you have a bite of a really good chocolate chip cookie and you're having a crisis of like, oh my God, that's so good, right? You can have a crisis, it can be a good thing, but what crisis does is it causes us to see differently. And we need crisis. Unfortunately, it's the thing we want to avoid the most. But crisis, conflict, all that kind of stuff is actually the stuff that moves us forward in life. And what we have to do is there are two ways. When we, when we embrace crisis or we are in the midst of crisis or crisis embraces us, which is unfortunately what happens most of the time, there are two options. We can be bitter about the crisis and we can just kind of go around in circles and say, I can't believe this is happening to me. Woe is me. Uh, or we can choose to see the beauty. So the whole title of the sermon as I was working on it was The Bitter and the Beautiful. There are two ways to see the world. And especially in crisis, I know it's so hard. But beauty doesn't have to be like all flower rainbows, like good times and happy stuff. Beauty can be something extremely meaningful. Uh, and in crisis is where we actually get the fastest track to meaning. <laughs> 
it's like a shot in the arm of meaning, right? So when we experience a crisis, we view things uh, in different ways. So I had a, uh, a wedding, and before this I was a musician, I was a worship leader, and I would travel around churches and stuff, and so I got asked to play a lot of weddings, uh, which are enormously stressful to do because you're on the line. Like, a wedding is something that you realize, like, everybody is going to remember this moment. Um, and so one of my uh, wife's childhood friends, uh, Madison, was getting married, and she had asked me to play um, Canon in D on the guitar, on the acoustic guitar, um, as she walked down the aisle. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever tried to play Canon in D in any kind of thing, but it is a difficult tune. So I wasn't about to memorize that bad boy, so I just decided I'm gonna have my iPad right next to me, and I'll have the music on the iPad, and I'll be able to sight read it so I can get through it, because uh, it's, it's a high-pressure situation. I don't want to blow this. Um, so, by the way, I'm gonna set up two iPad stories here, both end in crisis. So this, <laughs> this iPad is there. It's about like 95 degrees on a Malibu day, and there, I'm in direct sunlight, my bald head is burning, and, and I'm sitting there, and if my head is burning, I'm looking at the iPad going like, oh boy, because I don't have any control. I'm, I'm over here doing this, and the iPad is there. I can't like touch it, I can't fiddle with it. It's just there, and it's kind of slowly on its scroll app like showing me what I'm playing. And so my buddy Andrew's next to me, and he's playing piano, and I'm playing, and I'm just, it, she comes, she's at the, like, the foot of the aisle there, everybody stands, everybody's looking towards, and I'm not joking, poetically in this moment, my iPad goes like, it overheated. So I don't know if you know this, if you like, put your phone out for too long or something, or like your iPad, it will literally shut down if it's too hot. And so my iPad shut down the moment she was supposed to walk down the aisle. So... Being a brave music major, I have a degree in this stuff, I said, I think I can do it. So I start, and I start off pretty well, but then you get into like two or three bars in, and I'm completely blowing it. And luckily, my buddy Andrew, who's like a savant, just literally slaps me, and he's like, step out. And then he like <laughs> plays it like gorgeously, right? So that's my first iPad, don't tech, d crisis moment, don't, don't trust technology. And I should have gleaned something from that crisis. So here's the thing, <laughs> you can remain bitter, which is what I did, and I was like, I can't believe the iPad shut down on me. That's the stupid iPad's fault. I'm in no way responsible for this. Uh, thank you, Andrew, for coming to save the day, but it's the iPad's fault. So I continue in this pattern of using an iPad for everything and not paper, uh, mostly because I don't like printers. But I was here, and we were, this was my second sermon, um, and I hadn't done much public speaking. I'd been a youth pastor, so you, when you're a youth pastor, you do like 10-minute TED Talks to kids that aren't really listening. So it wasn't like the same as like doing an actual sermon. So uh, I, it was my second sermon, and I used to write out verbatim all the words uh, to my speech, and then I would just kind of scroll through, and I would find my place, and then I would kind of jog my memory, and I would go, okay, but I had like a, a safety net here. I had something that told me like, okay, well, this is where you're going. This is you know, what you're doing. Um, and uh, right as I get up for announcements, uh, right after announcements, everyone's greeting, we're doing this thing, Amit's playing, and I click on my iPad, and click on my iPad, <laughs> click on my iPad again. Nothing is coming up. Those were all my notes. That was everything for the day. But here's the deal. I had one crisis moment, right, from an iPad. So this moment, I think, well, maybe I'm a better speaker than I am a musician, and I can get through this. <laughs> and the truth is, I actually got through it, and I got through it better than I would have if I had the iPad on, and it taught me a huge lesson, which is I didn't need to anchor myself in the notes and be in the weeds, but I could actually be a little bit more free. And since then, I've just handwritten notes, because those can't shut down or light on fire, uh, and I just talk. But see, that crisis caused me, if it weren't for that kind of threshold moment, I would still be up here, kind of like scrolling through here, looking through tiny little print and talking to you guys in kind of a canned version. It caused me to move. It caused me to go. It caused me to go in a different direction. 
You see, crisis can actually be an absolutely wonderful thing. It can teach us. The way we see beauty in a crisis is offering that crisis the reins of teacher to say, hey, what can you teach me in this moment that I didn't know before? How can you teach me to see the world differently? And guys, I recognize it's really easy to say when we're in these crisis moments, it is totally not easy to keep this level head. Um, so I'm gonna tell two stories today. Uh, one is a, a, a scripture, it's a, it's a book in the Bible called Ruth, and it's an absolute story of crisis and paradigm shifts and go. Uh, and then I'm gonna tell a story about my car in which you're gonna hear another crisis that I went through and another story where I'm an idiot. Um, so that's gonna be fun. So let me pray for us uh, and then we're gonna get into this. God, um, I just thank you uh, for this morning. I thank you for the space that we have. I thank you for, uh, I thank you for crisis um, and that you can be our teacher through a crisis, that you walk with us in a crisis and that you're always there for us. Amen. So I think that every crisis is actually an invitation to something and it's an invitation to something scary. So when something comes into our lives and it disrupts it and we, we have no control anymore, we have a couple options, but the main invitation that crisis is giving us is, hey, are you willing to step into risk? And risk is incredibly scary. Risk is this something where you feel like it's on you. Oh, I have to step out and I actually have to make this choice. I have to do this new thing. I have to try something I've never tried before. And that's risky and it's scary. And sometimes it doesn't work out. And sometimes it does, but sometimes it really does not work out. And your risk is a risk because there's that. But Richard Rohr puts this beautifully. When we kind of go through our lives, and at the end of the day, we look back. This is what he says. He's going to say it better than I do. Uh, do we have that first quote there, TJ? There we go. Uh, he says this about, he wrote a book called Falling Upward, which is about the two halves of life. So the first half of the book is about how we build a container for our life. And then the second half of life in the book is about how we fill that container up. So the first half of life is all about like, how do I build structure, right? How do I save enough money? How do I get security? How do I do all this stuff? Do, it's sort of the ego building. And then he says the second half of life, which unfortunately a lot of people never get to, both age-wise and just maturity-wise, is not continuing to build those structures, but learning how to fill those structures up. Like I've done all this hard work, so now how do I enjoy it? How do I truly say that's enough? It's good, I've got what I need and I can actually lean into it. And he says this about people who don't quite get to that maturity level. He said, many of the depressed people are people who have never taken any risks, never moved outside their comfort zone, never faced necessary suffering, and so their unconscious knows that they have never lived or loved. So their unconscious knows that they've never lived or loved. Have you ever just been sitting there and like, like it's the end of the day, You've worked hard all day and you're at home and maybe you're in your like favorite chair and for some reason it still doesn't feel like you're sitting at home. Something still feels undone, left behind, not finished. And I think the problem is, yes, risk some, sometimes leaves us in despair and in a bad spot. We took the wrong choice. We made the wrong, it was too risky, whatever it might be. But the problem is fulfillment in life, satisfaction in life comes through those risks. And Richard Rohr says it beautifully, but it's necessary suffering. It's not unnecessary suffering. It's not the stuff like you're just getting pounded and you're being conflicted all the time. It's necessary suffering. It's the stuff that we actually have to go through in order to grow. But 
especially as Americans, we love to avoid suffering at all costs. It's our least favorite thing, and it's uncomfortable. But as we'll learn, especially in the story of Ruth, it's actually what moves things uh, forward. But I want to talk about how we're going to, if we're going to step into risk, how we can constantly be focused on how we can make this a beautiful thing rather than a bitter thing, right? Because if we do step into risk, there's a chance that it's not going to work out, and then there's a chance that bitterness can take over. And here's the thing, when bitterness takes over, we get nothing done. <laughs> bitterness is the enemy of progress. Bitterness just causes us to walk around in circles, right? If we're, if we're bitter to the core, we truly are, we're never going to let something be our teacher because we're going to be like, no, I'm, I'm in my moody self and I'm never coming out of that, right? We, as we step into risk, we always have to go, okay, what's the more beautiful option here? How do I lean into beauty and through this risk, even if I fail, see the beauty and the beautiful within that? Um, and I think the perfect example of bitterness, uh, if we could for a minute, is the internet. So we'll talk about the internet for just one second. Uh, bitterness is everywhere online. If you open up Twitter, you're going to see bitterness like crazy. Open up Instagram, you're going to see a bunch of people liking things, but really they're bitter about everything, <laughs> right? We have like these machines of bitterness. And one of my favorite manifestations of that bitterness are internet trolls. Do you guys know what an internet troll is? A troll is someone uh, whose entire existence is over a keyboard and they love to just like, they, they love to like, like cause problems. So like they'll troll someone uh, if they don't like what they're doing online or whatever, if they don't like what their hair looks like. These trolls take a lot of pride in terms of trying to take advantage of people or rip people down online. Uh, but the internet has two sides, right? There's the beautiful and there's the bitter. And some of my favorite people on the internet are the people that take that bitterness and creatively find a way to make it beautiful. <laughs> so here's a perfect example. Um, someone tried to scam, we have that first picture there. Uh, this is from uh, Jane Giles, um, and it, it's a scam artist trying to get money uh, from someone online, and it says, uh, Dear David, our records indicate that your account is overdue by amount of $233.95. If you have already made this payment, please contact us within the next seven days. Confirm payment has been applied to your account and is no longer outstanding. Sincerely yours, Jane Giles. So this guy knows that this is a, uh, that this is a scam. And so he replies back, and I don't think we can see it because our, our lights are so crazy this morning. Uh, but basically he responds, um, I don't have that money, but I am an artist and I've uh, submitted this picture of this spider and that's going to be the credit for it if you wouldn't mind sending me a bill because the balance is overdue. He charged like $300 for the spider. Um, incredible. See, it's, it's a creative response to something bitter and awful. And this one is probably my favorite. This happened in 2004. Uh, there's a guy who, um, oh, we're not going to be able to see that at all. Okay, anyway. He, basically, this guy puts a, a brand new MacBook on eBay. Uh, it's only like five days old. He just wants to sell it. He, he, he doesn't want to use it anymore. Uh, and the scam artist comes through and says, hey, I'm in, I'm in London in the UK. I can wire you the money, uh, but it's going to go through an escrow service. And so this guy understands, like, okay, I'm, I'm totally getting scammed here. So he goes on to Reddit, and he asks advice from other internet people and says, like, what should I do to this scam artist? And they say, they come, they, like, through the magic and wonders of the internet, they come up with a beautiful idea to get back at this person in which they say, tell him to wire you the money through his bogus little thing, but then send him a three-ring binder with keyboard stuff posted in. Uh, and so I don't know if you can see this at all, but basically this is uh, uh, keys from an Apple II that he glued to a, a, a three-ring binder. And then my favorite is on the next page here, and I don't know if we're going to see this. Um, he wrote, oh, it's somewhere on there, but that's the trash can in the corner. And then at the bottom he wrote, it's real. <laughs> um, so th these are creative ways of dealing with bitterness. They take a bitter situation, 
they have fun with it, they use a creative method, and then they turn it into something beautiful like a three-ring binder that looks like a MacBook, right? Jesus is a genius at this stuff. And we have to understand, if we look at Jesus, we're looking at a manifestation, an incarnation of what God wants us to look like. That's God's ultimate plan for us. He wants us to live a life like that. And so when Jesus is dealing with problems and he's dealing with healing people and he's dealing with real world crisis and stuff, the way that he responds is what we should look to and say, oh, that's the way that God responds. And oftentimes, Jesus responds in crazy, creative, genius ways. We talked about third way thinking about two weeks ago, but it's the whole idea of like the turn the other cheek and walk the extra mile and, and all of that is not actually what it seems. It's actually a beautifully subversive, like relentless, hopeful way of dealing with life. But the, the one I missed that time that I can come back to just to show you how smart, we often don't like focus on how smart Jesus was. The guy is an absolute genius. That, that saying, go the extra mile, right? We use that on like posters with, you know, like cats hanging on a thing, like hang in there, buddy. But go the extra mile is actually a Roman propaganda uh, slogan. So basically what it means is uh, if a Roman soldier in the ancient days uh, found you and say you're a farmer just working, doing your business, uh, they could just walk up to you and they could say, hey, you see my bag, you see my shield, my sword, all that kind of stuff. You're going to carry it with me and you're going to carry it for a mile. Because Roman law said that any Roman soldier could take someone and could say, hey, you're going to follow me for a mile. And then they would just like ditch the person. They'd have to walk back in the same direction a mile. It's a terrible, terrible rule, but like it happened all the time in Jesus' day. You'd just be going about your business and you would want to avoid soldiers at all costs because they could just point you out and go like, hey, hey, come carry this with me for a mile. And so what Jesus says when he says, if, you, if they say go one mile, go another mile, is not like to be cheery and happy and just carry that thing one more mile and just say, yes, sir, Roman soldier, I'll do whatever you say. No, the actual beauty of this is that if you went past a mile, the Roman soldier was no longer within the bounds of the law. They were actually breaking the law because you were carrying something further than you were originally supposed to. And so that Roman soldier could be reprimanded, could be thrown in jail, could be fined, all of these different things. So he says, as a form of protest, as a form of like, get them back, take that stuff and don't just take it a mile, but then take it another mile so that they get in trouble, right? And that's not going to work every time, but Jesus is just saying like, hey, you guys aren't thinking about this stuff as creatively and as imaginatively as you could. You're thinking of it as bitter, right? If I have to carry that that extra mile and I'm just doing it because I'm, I'm trying to go above and beyond, that's bitterness. But if I'm doing it and I'm going to get this Roman soldier, who is a jerk, by the way, <laughs> this Roman soldier in trouble, then there's something beautiful in that. So Jesus is a master at taking these bitter situations, these awful realities that these people had to live in, which were tough, tough stuff. He's taking them and he's saying, no, I can help you twist it so that it's beautiful. And the most gorgeous part of that, guys, is that it's not just all about, like God's not just going like, hey, because of the cross, all of this stuff is now okay. He's saying, no, guys, because of the cross, salvation is real and I'm with you, but this stuff remains. This hard stuff is here. And so the wonderful part about the God we follow is that it's not just all about out there stuff. He's with us in the depths of the realities of our daily lives. He gives us real deal tools to deal with the oppressive, bitter stuff we have to go through to make it beautiful, to actually make it into a third way, not just fight, not just flight, but a third new beautiful way. That's 
the Jesus that we follow. And I think all too often, we just put him off in the clouds, and we think that the, our Christian life somehow exists somewhere other than ourselves right here, right now. And when we do that, we're putting our best self out there in a place that's not for us yet. Like, God deeply cares for your life right here, right now. He cares about the choices you make. He cares about go and stay. And so we have this huge library of scriptures all filled with these stories of people who had to make these tough decisions, who went through tough times, who dealt with the bitterness, and we have beauty as a result. He really cares about making what is here and now absolutely beautiful. I think if there's any example of this, uh, it's the book of Ruth. The Ruth um, is four chapters, that's it. It's a tiny little blip on the radar. Uh, basically, it comes after uh, Judges in the Bible, and Judges is a tumultuous story of all of this crazy leadership that happens in this ancient uh, nation called Israel. So Israel's gone through a bit of a split. They, they, they've, they disbanded, things are not looking great for them. They were ruled for a period of time by these judges. And so this book, Ruth, says in the day of the judges, so it takes place in turmoil. What we have in Ruth is crisis everywhere. Crisis for the nation, crisis for this family, crisis for Ruth, crisis for Naomi, crisis for Orpah, which by the way, if you're writing a sermon and the sister's name is Orpah and you have to do that more than once, it got autocorrected to Oprah every single time. <laughs> anyway, so you have, you have chaos and crisis all over the story. There is nothing good at the beginning of the story. So basically, we enter the scene here and we meet a family. And this family has three gentlemen in it at the beginning. Uh, and, uh, but, but a crisis, so there's a crisis, there's, there's a famine. So I don't know if you, like, we don't actually deal with famine in the United States all that much, but famine was a time where God was angry at you. In this ancient agricultural society, if crops weren't growing, it's because you did something bad and your God was furious with you and so you're not gonna have any food because it's a form of punishment. What we're dealing with here is a very angry God. These people, each family, each tribe had their own God that they worshiped. It was a polyamorous system, and so their God would fight against other gods. This was the belief. And so for Israel, for this nation, they had this God, and this God operated a little bit differently because it did something weird. It made promises with its people. So other gods would just say, like, hey, till this field, do this right, and if you don't like sin, maybe I'll send some rain your way. But this God says, no, 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 I'm making a promise with you that this is going to be a great nation, that you're going to be protected, and that you're going to be okay. That's a weird God in this society. <laughs> so this God, though, for some reason, seems to have left the picture here because there's a famine and no one's getting any food to eat. So this family decides we can't stay here. Our God is angry at us. We'll have to go to another place where there's food. What's the closest available place? And unfortunately, that's where the Moabites lived. So Moabites are like, like if you think of Christianity and you think of denominations, right? There's like Southern Baptist and Normal Baptist. And for some reason, they don't agree, even though everything looks exactly the same. Right? So there's, there's these divisions in these people, but actually they're really closely related. So the Moabites, earlier on in the story, there's a guy named Abraham, Father Abraham, and many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. Abraham is this great leader, and Abraham has a son, his name is Lot, and Lot's son is Moab, and they create this tribe. So Israel and Moab are actually deeply interrelated, but they hate each other. Like, there is no bigger rivalry than the Moabites and the Jewish people. And so this guy, this family, uh, with this lady named Naomi have to humble themselves and go into a foreign land where they are likely hated and where they are bitter and don't want to be there in the first place. And so they show up in this place 
uh, and things seem to be picking up, right? There's food here. There's like, we're, we're living our life. Uh, but just two lines in, we lose the patriarch of the family. The big guy goes down. So he passes away. Naomi's husband passes away. And then uh, his, her sons get married. So the way things worked back then was if you were a widow, but you had a son, you were still in good social standing. You could do things like get money, have security, all that kind of stuff, have an inheritance. But if your sons died, that was like the ultimate, like you're, you're down and out, completely gone. And I, I can't say this enough because we often say like, oh, it's a bad situation. This is, this is a horrible situation for Naomi. First, her husband dies. She's in a foreign land where she has no family, no friends, no anything. And then her sons get married and things are looking really great. And they get married to these two named Orpah and Ruth. And then they pass away. So now instead of just having one crisis, we have three separate crises. And they're all in probably the worst, lowest social standing of the day. A widow in those days had a couple options. They could beg for food. They could glean, which was sort of a, an ancient way of like welfare, or, and honestly, sorry about this, but like sex work was the other option. That was the only other thing that they could do. They were in a terrible, terrible spot in this ancient society. That's why so much of you look at scripture is all about caring for the widow and the orphan, because the widow was a huge social problem at that time. They just didn't know how to deal with it. So these three uh, widows then decide, Naomi decides, okay, well, I've heard that there's food back in my homeland. At least there I have some family. I'll be okay. Uh, but I've got to take these two daughters with me because now they're, they're like, they're pledged to me. They're in my family. And so they set off and they go back. But then she has second thoughts and she says, it's going to be too hard for you guys here. You can't come with me. Like if you come, then you're going to be a widow in a strange land. I'm just doing to you what I would have been dealing with back there. This is where the scripture picks up, and we'll read this. Um, we have that there, TJ? Okay. Uh, but Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you, want, uh, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. So pay attention to this. Naomi is looking at God in a bitter way. And in fact, right after this verse, she changes her name to Mara, which literally means bitter. So Naomi, there are two ways to go in this story. And Naomi is the first way. Naomi is the bitter root. She's a person who chooses bitterness because that's what she believes God operates in. She believes that this is a God that's punishing her for some unknown reason. Uh, next slide there, please. Um, at this, they wept aloud again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Ruth, uh, look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go with her. So we got a lot of go going on. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from where, uh, or turn from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if death separates you and me. Uh, when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined not to go with her, she stopped urging her. So we have one person in this story that's dealing with bitterness, and then Ruth seems absolutely relentlessly determined to look at this in a hopeful way, in a beautiful way. She says, no, I'm going to go with you. And here's the crazy part. That's not legal. 
So because Ruth is a Moabite, there's a, there's a verse in Deuteronomy that says 10 generations. If you are a 10th generation of Moabite and you get married, you still are not allowed to set foot in the temple. You're not allowed anywhere near the Jewish people, like by law. But Ruth steps out of the law and says, no, I will remain dedicated to you and I will become a Jewish person. I will become an Israelite. Your God is now my God. She breaks all the rules. And we have an example of this, guys, in which God says, good. <laughs> like, great. Because that's the faithful act. To break all the rules in this to go and follow God is actually a good thing. So we've got the bitter go, and we've got the hopeful go. Basically, to wrap this story up, what happens is they go, and as an act, as a, as a result, a direct result of Ruth's faithfulness to Naomi, God redeems this whole story by providing Ruth with a new husband, and then, and then like they flourish and everything's amazing, and then that new husband whose name Boaz has a son whose name is Obed, and then they have a son whose name is Jesse, and then Jesse has this little son that's named David. And David becomes the greatest king that Israel has ever seen, and then in our tradition, you fast forward, you have a genealogy that goes all the way from David's line right to Jesus. So God uses this bitter situation, this divisive country, this racial, just fused moment, and he creates the family line that Jesus will come from. He uses this bitter, crazy situation to redeem the entire world. He uses a crisis so that all of us can see the world in a different way, with relentless beauty and relentless hope. This week, um, oh gosh, this is an embarrassing story, but it, it has to be said. Uh, I, um, I, uh, I hate cars. So cars are the bane of my existence. Uh, I grew up at, for a time in Amsterdam where trains were everywhere, and so I've always loved a good train. Train is a miracle. You just like sit on it, it takes you where you wanna go. You're not like sitting in traffic and road rage uh, and all that good stuff. And so I love like the train and element and everything, but when we moved, we moved from Amsterdam uh, to Short Hills, New Jersey which uh, is a, it's, it's a nice town, but it's New Jersey. So we moved to New Jersey, and I had to be reliant upon my mom and her minivan to take me everywhere that I wanted to go. Even though, like, when I lived in Amsterdam and I was, like, 11 years old, you could hop on a train and go wherever you wanted. Uh, so I, I quickly learned to resent cars, especially minivans. Ooh, anyway, so we, we were in New Jersey. Uh, flash forward, I just kind of didn't want to get my license, and plus, I was really good at having other people drive me around. So uh, I didn't get my license until I was like 18, almost 19. Um, and then when I did, I was driving around my parents' minivan until uh, I got enough money and I bought a convertible Saab. So this was the one story in my life where I was like, I'm gonna get a car, I'm gonna get a car that I like. I'm gonna be a car guy. I'm really gonna like cars now. And I get this Saab, I spent all the money I have on this at like 19 years old. Um, and uh, a week into having the car, I just gotten the brakes fixed, like a new paint job. I put, because like I'm a nerd, I put a really nice stereo in there, like everything was like tip top. And I'm driving with the, uh, the top down, and I've got these little flimsy sunglasses on, uh, and the girl that I was dating on at the time tried to take them off of my uh, face, just jokingly, and put them on. Uh, something I will never forget uh, and never, never forgive. Uh, she took it off, and, uh, and a school bus uh, slammed on the brakes in front of me, and I slammed on the brakes, but I was too late, and the sob basically went, have you ever seen a sob? It looks like a hat, which is probably why I was really into it. Anyway, it, it looks like a hat, and so it's got this like really small, like, 
hood thing under there and it just slid right under the school bus and peeled back that hood like a like a xylophone like it was just like uh and basically long story short the the car was absolutely totaled there was no way it was going to get fixed um so i went back to driving the dreaded minivan fast forward i buy a honda 2003 crv which guys pure luxury. I, I pack everything I have in this car and I move down to Los Angeles and I drive this car for 330,000 miles. <laughs> I, I got every last inch out of this car, but then enter crisis mode once again. Uh, Chelsea and I had gotten married. We, we sold her car because we were just going to have one car and then my car decides uh, that the catalytic converter on it doesn't want to work anymore and that it's going to cost more to fix it than it will to go. So I had to let go of my beloved 2003 CRV with 330,000 miles on it. So we said, say la vie to that, and we entered a crisis panic because we didn't really know what we were doing. And so we went, okay, let's go lease a car. We leased a car. We leased this RAV4, which was a rash decision, and I never really liked the car. But anyway, we, we have the RAV4, um, and it's a three, it's a 36-month lease. <laughs> is something I really should have paid attention to. 36 months, uh, and we had to give the car back. And so I just, you guys know me, like I'm not, I'm not really an organized person and I'm no good with dates. So I'm just humming along, and I, I just told Chelsea, like, don't worry about it, I'll handle everything with the car. Like, I'm, I got the pain, like, don't worry about it. So I had an auto pay system, we are just humming along. Um, and then Chelsea uh, wakes up on Tuesday morning, and she's going to the car, and she calls me, and she says, hey Josh, did you move the car last night? <laughs> and I said, no. Did you move the car last night? She said, no. I come outside with our little dog, Baloo, and we walk around the neighborhood for about 20 minutes, and we don't find our car. And so I go, uh-oh, this isn't good. In the back of my mind, I'm going like, I, I bet you our lease was up. <laughs> but, but to save face and to be really cool in front of Chelsea, I was like, I think it got stolen. Someone stole our car. Let's call the police department. We call the police department. We get there, uh, and they say, like, no, we don't have anything in our thing. Is it possible? Is it possible that it got repossessed? <laughs> and I said, no way. <laughs> and then we call, and sure enough, they're like, oh, no, 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 it got repossessed. And I went, it got what? So I had to spend all week on the phone uh, with Toyota trying to figure out what the heck happened. And basically, like, at first, it was, it was absolute dark, bitter craziness. Like, our, it was going to hit our credit. Everything was going to go wrong. I was like, oh, my God. And then, so if a car, <laughs> I learned a lot about this. If a car gets repossessed, it turns out that you are fully responsible for the full price of that car and then for any of the damages incurred on the car that you already have. So you can end up paying almost one and a half times what the car was originally worth. Uh, and I'm just going to let you guys know, you're looking around, pastor and a kindergarten teacher, that was not an amount of money that we had. So uh, I had to figure this out. And so I said, oh man, what am I talking about this week? And oh boy, I'm talking about crisis. So I've learned that like whatever I'm talking about kind of manifests itself in my daily week. So I'm only going to talk about winning the lottery from now on. It's, it's <laughs> too much. But anyway, I'm like, okay, well, hold on. I'm going to be sharing with people on Sunday how they're supposed to be seeing beauty in a crisis and how they're supposed to be using this as a teacher. How can I use this as a teacher? And that lasted for about three seconds until I got on hold with Toyota again. Then I was like a bitter as a root. I didn't, I didn't like them. It was terrible. Uh, but basically, towards the end of it, I, I figured out, I was like, well, wait a minute. We leased this car, and we leased it past full term, and they were, uh, they were cashing our checks. So like they, we were still paying on the car. So I called them, and I tried to be as reasonable as possible, and I said, hey, our lease matured. We, we kind of did the deal with you guys. So does that mean that we're still on the hook for all of this? 
And then the lady on the phone goes, oh, I never thought of that. No, you don't have to do anything. You can just turn it in and walk away if you want. And I said, you couldn't have told me. This was like three days into this process. You couldn't have told me this right at the beginning. But they're like, no, yeah, yeah, just pay like the mileage on it and just, just walk away. And I was like, ma'am, and I literally said this out loud. I said, ma'am, throw that car in the trash. <laughs> so anyway, we, we were able to walk away from the payment and it was all good. But the point was, it, it takes an enormous amount of energy to take a break and to say, how can this be my teacher? It's work. Bitterness is not work. Bitterness is so easy. It's so easy to get in the mindset of everything's going to hell in a handbasket, and, and that takes no work. You know, again, this is a Richard Gore thing, but uh, he, he talks about how psychologists have measured how bad news hits us and how good news hits us. And if you see bad news, you see a bad headline, the way that our brain works is that it instantly implements something in our brain that says, ooh, bad news. I'll hold on to that. For good news, it actually takes 30 seconds of staring at that good news, of reflecting on that good news, for it to implement the same way that bad news does in our brain. There are two ways to go. One is bitter, and one is beauty. And in Ruth's story, Ruth's beauty, even though it was more work, even though it was giving up her family, giving up everything that she knew to go live as a foreign widow in a different land, because she chose to lean in to the beauty Everything was eventually restored. Everything was restored. And it was hard work. It wasn't just like snap your fingers, everything's good and happy-go-lucky. It took time. But God restores when we lean in to the beautiful things in our lives. Let's pray together. God, I'm in, uh, incredibly grateful um, for the beauty that you insert into our lives, for the choice that we have before us to, uh, to lean into beauty or, or let bitterness take control, God. And I pray, just especially over this next week, uh, that we would lean into beauty. I pray um, that if this is a difficult day for some, that we would, we would choose actively to lean into beauty. Um, and the same for this is an awesome, joyous, wonderful day for us. Thank you for that beauty. Amen. Um, we are going to take communion.